podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully, by listening, it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. From an early age, Phil suffered terrible illness that affected him in so many ways. He grew up in the mining towns on the west coast of Tasmania in the 1950s. As a kid, he was very sick and was given too much cortisone, which then caused him to be overweight and bullied at school. He had to deal with terrible ordeal of being molested as a small boy and not being able to tell his parents what had happened because of the shame it would bring. Phil was able to see future events as a child before they happened. He would go to sleep and then visualise them. It was a gift as well as a terrible burden, as he believed he had caused these events to happen. He suffered from chronic fatigue as a result of the drugs he was given as a child, resulting in him having to lie down, not function, and rely on the help of others to feed and wash him. Because he gave so much of himself throughout his life, and because he had too much cortisone as a child, he had a cardiac arrest in his 40s and was technically dead for over four minutes, and then brought back to life. He recounted his out-of-body experience in detail. An incredible story. Phil is a very smart man who sees the world in an incredible way. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Please note, there are parts of this recording where the audio is not always clear, so I hope this doesn't detract from your enjoyment. What does family mean to you? Uh, everything. Whether I have an argument or a lack of understanding one of the kids, it's, it's hard for me not to take it like the bottom's dropped out of my life, you know? Yes, family means everything to me. Which and is a present dilemma because I left Melbourne after divorce and after the kids left home and after looking after my mum for the last three months of her life and then once she was buried. I was finding it very hard after the cardiac arrest and my body changed that I, I found the cold in Melbourne was too cold and the heat in Melbourne was too hot. I just wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't flourishing, I wasn't getting well. And I, I developed what they call chronic fatigue, which I didn't know what it was. So I was telephoned by some permaculture friends in a bigger valley. I was like, free, could I stand in for a teacher on sick leave? for third term at the start of school, yeah, a primary school in, in bigger. So they gave me a three-way phone interview and I went up there and over those three months teaching up there, not only was the climate better, but I got rid of 90% of the chronic fatigue for walking on the beach, the sea air, uh, no overhead power lines, no pollution. Mind you, I had to I sound like I'm very smart, but I had to find out what it was. So I researched it all out everywhere from Sweden and Germany and Switzerland and other parts of the world where people had experience of overcoming chronic fatigue. Oh, meanwhile, of course, I'd seen good physios in Melbourne and I had hydrotherapy and physiotherapy off and on for six months to try to deal with the, the chronic fatigue. But the sad thing about it is the kids said, but they're just so far away, you know. But when they first left home, that wasn't so important to them. But once we started having grandchildren, once grandchildren came along. But when I first moved away, and after I was managing the chronic fatigue, I thought nothing of hopping in the car and driving down to Melbourne in one day. Then going back, and I do that six times a year. And while some of my kids both were working, I look after the grandkids during the school holidays. I used to enjoy that. I enjoyed being able to relate them to them daily and I, st I stayed in the houses they were renting. But once they got to an age where they didn't need any babysitting, 
I lost a lot of contact with those with those grandchildren. Then I realised that's why it's important to be close by, why why old villages and country where people didn't move much out of the valley. One of the advantages that you were close at hand in a emergency or just I think I, I think I walk up and see grandpops. And my oldest granddaughter is twenty five. I was able to look after Jesse, so we formed a, a close bond, which is, and I, when, when she had her 21st birthday, I said, I said, Jesse, you, you must realise that you're a large part of the reason why I'm still here. What do you mean? And I said, well, I had a reason each morning to get up when you were two years old and come in, I said, are you awake, Grandpops? I said, I am now. Let's go and find worms. Because I had a beautiful garden and I said, and I was into permaculture and all the kids and grandkids knew about, um, started to learn about that. So I said, yeah, I had, a, I had a motivation. I said, I didn't have much physical strength and I couldn't do a lot of things I used to do. And I partly dropped out of the workforce. I was only working self-employed. I, wasn't well enough to get a job working for an organisation where the chronic fatigue was crippling. Because I don't know what chronic fatigue is. So, what, uh, tell, so anyone listening to this, what does chronic fatigue mean to, to you? Well, in my case, the symptoms didn't all come at once. But we would start with the fact that I... Sadly, in the middle of work in a, working in an office or at a, at a, at a meeting with clients and builders, I suddenly feel, whether I was sitting or standing, well, I suddenly feel I had a blanket of tiredness come over me like, like, oh my God, I wish I could, I wish I could go to sleep right now, right here. So it's like, so that's one thing. The other thing was I found that uh, my glands under my arms and elsewhere would start to swell up and be painful. Of course, you, of course, you check out grades of a fever, of course, and um, no, that wasn't it. I had l- l- less inclination to want exercise. I used to get headaches. Now, it's true that before I had chronic, I used to get migraines. I coped with that by cutting out certain foods, red cask wine. I cut out cheap chocolate, particularly with dairy. I, I cut out those... When you go to a conference or orange juice in a bottle, uh, it's all synthesised and messed up. Uh, I cut that out. For a while I cut out tomatoes and capsicums and I could never tolerate Vegemite or peanut butter. They they were the two probably worst for producing in me a feeling of uh, nausea. So that's going to ask you, how did you know which things to cut out? Did you feel bad after you'd eaten, like, yeah. them? There are th- three things. One is a little pamphlet that a Western Australian uh, nursing sister had put together back in the 50s. Some foods that may cause migraines. And she suggested you try it, cutting out all those known foods for a period of, say, six weeks, and introducing one at a time, and notice your reaction. Now, probably the worst was peanut butter, uh, Vegemite, and, of course, MSG. So, for years, I hadn't had Asian food which had MSG in it. But the problem is, back in the 60s, they didn't know enough about what they were serving. They didn't know that the bulk soy sauce they were buying, the cheapest one, had a lot of MSG added to it. They may not have used any in their cooking directly, so I had I had to discover those things so gradually. So my sensitivity to light and to sound also became acute when I had what they call chronic fatigue. Some of the symptoms. I uh, and you didn't have that before chronic fatigue. You'd never had issues with too much light or. No, 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 I hadn't. Uh, only when I had nephritis when I was a kid. And I asked them to pull the blinds. It was too bright. But that only lasted a couple of months. And 
Uh, so chronic fatigue is a a whole lot of symptoms, and not not everyone gets all of them. And some only get some of them, but what and the other why it manifested itself was that I was looking forward to going to this conference. I woke up early, as I often uh, used to do, wake up at sunrise. And the kids used to laugh at Dad. You jump out of bed like you enjoy being up. I said, I do. I go out to the garden and I make a cup of tea, coffee out in the garden, check any weeds or any pests on plants and make sure all the chooks were accounted for, that they maybe pick some fruit and put on the table when the kids got up so there was fresh fruit there. And one day, this does was going to a conference and I was looking forward to it. I woke up, went home out of bed, I couldn't move. I literally couldn't move. It's like I was tied to the bed. I was up no matter how much effort I put into my mind, I couldn't, couldn't raise my body. I asked someone in the house to, I had a doctor who was a Chinese medical doctor. He was only recently in Australia. He said, oh, he said, uh, very bad, very bad, he said. He said, no, no chi. And then he said, well, I'm going to give you acupuncture and I'm going to cause you pain on your spine. I'm going to rub your spine with these spoons. Why well, said, to get rid of the too much carbon dioxide in your system. I said, how, how did that happen? He said, not breathing properly. When you're very tired, you may not breathe properly. When you're tired, what happens is you don't breathe for a while, then you go like that. And that, he said, you change the balance. You get too much oxygen, and without carbon dioxide, your muscles are not smooth. So then you go the other way. You've got to get the balance right between enough carbon dioxide for smooth muscles, so you don't overbreathe with oxygen, and cause yourself to be paralyzed. So, I had a lot of help on the way, but I had to find it. I think one of the things that, or reasons I'm still here is because I thought there's got to be a way of dealing with this other than just giving up. I was quite prepared to admit there are some situations that I couldn't control. Like, I couldn't control the fact that from when I was seven, and I had nephritis. When I was in a coma, as they explained to me, I wasn't getting enough adrenaline. Uh, the kidneys weren't able to make it. And if you give people cortisone, you get neuroadrenaline across the synapse of the cell, which stimulates the person to go from unconsciousness to conscious. Sometimes. That's all they could do. And I had, then I had millions of years of penicillin because Nephritis is a serious thing when your kidneys break down. You've got to get rid of the infection right in your kidneys. So, once again, you see, most people go to the hospital, they get diagnosed. They're often not told what the diagnosis is. And so one day I can say, well, you're right, you can go home now. But it wasn't nothing. I had to know. I wanted to know why it happened in the first place. What could I have done to have avoided it? But you see, so 40 years after I had heavy doses of cortisone and penicillin, I not only had it for the four weeks I was in hospital. I had it for two years. They gave me the cortisone and penicillin. So I blew up like uh, a Billy Butter. I was a a fat, I was like Jabba the Hutt. And kids were cruel, of course, at that age, so between, between 7 and 15, it took me dieting and forcing myself to do exercise to get anyway like a normal body. Because as it was, when I ran, I'd be like, my body would be like jelly. My thighs, my breasts, my stomach, my arms, just like jelly when I was running at school. 
Did you see when you said before children were cruel? Were they, did you just get bullied then? Yeah, they used to say, yeah. "Oh, look at you, fatty! Look, he's a girl. He's got breasts, you know." And so, how did you cope with that? Because you knew you couldn't do anything. Well, you did what you could do. Well, I, I used to shrink inside, and I tried to develop a strong external hide, but it was, it was all fake. And then I said, "Well, I've got to do something about this." I didn't cause it. By by being lazy or by being um, indulgent, just happened to me. Many many decades later, I met the Kyoto monks from the lilies of the Dalai Lama from Tibetan monks. Where did you meet them? Guestwork site in Melbourne. Okay. Before I, I just a couple of years before I went up to the coast. And uh, at that stage, I had really bad chronic fatigue. I was lying on a mattress on the floor where I was renting. And at that stage, sometimes I have to crawl to the toilet, so I made sure all the doors were always open. Wow. I had no energy to stand up. I crawled to the toilet. I had a special friend to haul myself up so I could go to the toilet. Do the spot, the, the normal things that everybody would get dressed? Get, you could you can do could, any of that? I had, I had neighbours and friends who'd come and bring me some of their cooked food or come and cook. I made sure I had a bowl of fruit and nuts always. But you couldn't have a, a shower or you couldn't wash yourself or anything no, like I that? No, I had to. People had to help you. People helped yeah. me out. I had many friends who were really upset to see me that way and they said, this is not right, Phil. You've done everything right. You've never smoked. You're not overweight. You, you taught us all about diet. And exercise, and look, it's not fair, you know. I said, well, and one of the good monks, well, he was asking me questions about my health, because I came in, my friends picked me up and put me on a stretcher in their combi and brought me in. The first time I went in, I was on a stretcher. And after 10 days, I could, I, I could walk out. I could walk in and walk out. And they had the chanting helped. They sang into my body those beautiful deep Tibetan sounds like 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 ten didgeridoos. They were they had this harmonic. And I sometimes I shake, sometimes I just cry and but I, I felt it was a really healing thing that they were doing. And one of them said to me, We monks have learned over centuries that have an attitude towards that they say we say shit happens. Shit happens unequally. Don't ask why me, ask what can I do with this shit? And that was fantastic, you know, that was made such a difference to my idea because being born a Presbyterian Protestant that you tend in the working class uh, many of the west coast of Tasmania in the mining town you tend to be brought up and think, I must have deserved it. That stupid Calvinist Lutheran thing, we must, must have done something bad to deserve all this to happen, you know. But were you told that? Or were you just kind of like what you no. just said? You were just, that was just the way that... I wasn't told that at all. I, I, I picked it up by osmosis from people, you know. So there weren't any books written in the 40s like, why do bad things happen to good people? It was always the assumption was, you know, you must have done something to bring us on yourself, you know. It's very much like the New Age philosophy. Ask for abundance. I said, I don't need abundance, I just need enough. I said, if you, I used to argue with some of the crystal-wearing uh, goddesses around all these down-to-earth places and stuff, and I say, if you ask for abundance, that's just another variation of a poverty mentality. It's the opposite. Poverty mentality, I don't have enough, so I'm going to grab it I get. The other thing is, reverse that, ask for abundance. What do you want abundance for? Do you want to ensure yourself materially against a time when there may not be enough? There's always can be enough, it's just it's how you utilise what's around. You know, no matter how little you have, I said, I said, some of you girls need to read some of the stuff from people in prison during the Second World War and in the Gulag 
of Stalin to know how little people have and how little it takes them to make them happy and how a smile and not blaming a guard can change the life of that guard by the time uh, his time is over, I said. I used to say, you know, you've got to read more. If we don't read, we don't understand our past. If we don't understand our past, how can we make changes to avoid the same pitfalls in the future? So it just seems to me to be... Most of my dad and mum were both readers of books. They read about three books a week each, the local library. They never actually preached to us and told us what to do and what not to do, but they were there for guidance whenever we had asked them about a dilemma. We had, and then I say, well, what do you think your choices are? All right, if you choose this one, what do you think the result will be? If you choose that one, so I remember wringing my hands at the age of 10 or 11, and better and thinking, Mum, Dad, you didn't help me. But the next morning when I woke up, I knew exactly what I had to do. <laughs> so I consider myself fortunate with my parents that um, my dad left school at uh, 10 and a half, because his father died of uh, silicosis in the mines, and he was one of six. And their mother worked 70 hours a week managing a, a boarding house for miners in the west coast of Tasmania. And dad and his brother and two of his sisters, they left school and went to work. But later on in his life, he had an opportunity when he was 30. Opportunity came up for a trainee health and building surveyor. But he studied night school, six years. Three little kids running around a plywood corrugated iron house and so then he moved to Hobart, which was a breath of fresh air for my brothers and I, to move to a place with a bit more culture, where it was standard thing to go to the theatre or the library or the art gallery, whereas that wasn't generally available. In Queenstown there was, or, or they had the usual array of cowboy or western films at the Saturday afternoon matinee, you know, and not much food for the soul. It was a good library in Queenstown. I grew up loving books. Uh, but that's, that's another thing. I love books so much that when I was overweight and I had this glandular problem because of the cortisone, I could easily lie there and read all day. And Dan and Mum would say, you're not going up the um, hill today, son. Do you feel like I can walk up into the right, up into the pine forest, you know? I used to force myself to get out of bed. And I really don't want to, because it's such an effort. But I know I should, because I don't want to end up like I am now, with no energy and too fat to run and swim properly when I'm older. <clears throat> I used to joke and I said, I don't want to be the heaviest person in a, in a coffin. And so you, you knew that the cortisone that you'd had as a kid was the reason why you were fat. You were told that or you just no. read that or you had... I only found out, I only found out after I had the cardiac arrest. But that was when you were much older. Yeah, 40 years. So, so how did you, what did you attribute the... Well, they said it's because my kidneys broke down, right? And the kidneys get rid of body's flu bodily fluid. But they didn't explore it any further. And of course, this is, this is the dilemma as well in health. The more cortisone they gave me, the more I was able to function. But it prevented my own kidneys producing their own cortisone because I was having it artificial. And so the whole process of Transition didn't happen for ages, but uh, for the next 40 years, I was actually building a plaque in my arteries, right? Particularly at, at the intersections of the corners, right? So Because of the cortisone you'd had? Yeah. 
as a child because you had too much. I had too much. The side effect of that was you said yeah. they build up plaque in your arteries. Well, the cortisone, what the cortisone does is the cortisone particularly affects the liver and it makes the liver less functional in a way that, and they think it destroys or weakens some of the enzymes in the liver that are responsible for getting rid of the body's excess cholesterol. That's the cholesterol we, we, we actually produce ourselves. Because without, without cholesterol, we don't have hair or eyes or skin or nails. And we were told that. And but when the liver is not functioning properly, and you're not getting rid of the bodily uh, normal way of the urine and feces and sweat, you're not getting rid of the excess cholesterol, it just builds up as plaque in your arteries. So when I, when I was a volunteer for an experiment in heart disease at the Alfred Hospital before I had to go into rest, they did all the tests and I was through that. And why did you go, why did you do that? Why did you go and have the, that, that, why did you go to that test? Oh, well, all, Did you suspect all, something was wrong? Or you no, didn't know all, you're... all the men in the, 40, in the 40s at our, our school were all about us. Oh, I see. But they were volunteer, and they particularly wanted a mix of people that were smokers and a mix of people that weren't smokers. They didn't want athletes, they wanted orderly, orderly blokes. So that's why I went along. But I had, a few weeks before, had the first dose of my life ever of bronchitis. Never had bronchitis before in my life, but that had... I said, oh, I might as well go I might try to find out what's causing this bronchitis, but the first time I had to have a, a puffer. Because, as you know, for Chinese medicine, there's association with every organ of the body <coughs> affects every other organ. If you have a strain on your liver, that can produce a strain on your heart, which then produces a strain on your lungs. So most of this stuff I only found out in, in, in retrospect. Uh, after I had the cardiac um, arrest, so how long, when you, you did the tests? It was while I was on the test. Yep, that they found that you had... That's when I had the cardiac arrest. Oh, you actually had it then. So was that, they were able to treat you quickly, therefore yeah. that would mean it meant you were more likely to survive or you would have died if you hadn't have, or who knows? Well, uh, then, uh, two days later I was about to go on the Great Victorian bike ride for the third time with my teenage, two of my teenage kids. And, and to, okay, cardiac arrest, tell me, what does what did that mean for you? What happened to you when you had the cardiac arrest? Where were you? Were you, were you in the hospital? I was just at the hospital. Yep. And they get, the doctor, the doctor's surgery I went to, when I had this chest pain, he said, sit still, he said. I said, I've got to, open the window, I need more air. And doctor still got this too, a lot of fat on your back while, you can't breathe for a lot of fat on your back. I just wanted more oxygen, more air. Eventually, the stethoscope, and he, he t- I remember the doctor, he's a Italian background, and he, he, and he turned white. Rushed across the room, got a needle, jabbed me. I found out later. He was so panicked, he just gave me the morphine. He didn't give me any semitel. You're going to get both together so you don't vomit all the time. So I was vomiting with a heart condition without knowing it. And he thought, uh, he called the ambulance and they said, well, um, he told my wife, I sent the receptionist around the corner to tell my wife, um, who was down the street at the time when this had happened to me, and uh, okay, we'll probably be back tomorrow. He's just had a chest pain. I said, but as you know, he's, he's fit as a valley bull. <laughs> well, so I thought. So anyway, so I, I was in casualty and I'm joking about, I said, my blood pressure's already this, my heart rate's already this, uh, blah, blah, blah. And they're laughing because, you know, not many patients know what. But I, but I observed things for the previous um, week. Uh, I started on the tests. Yeah, so I came to on a trolley in a corridor going upstairs. And when I had the cardiovascular, I thought they'd just give me an anaesthetic. Like someone turned the lights out. And it was about 20 minutes later, I woke up on this trolley and I felt yellow and grey and 150 years old. I felt so ill and I vomited. I've got a, a dish 
of the Venezuelan tank ramps did. They said I was technically dead for four and a half minutes. But did they, they resuscitated you back to life? Yeah, they did with, with electricity. Which is what you talked about before yeah. we did the pod. Yeah. And, uh, so you'd gone into, you'd, you'd, you'd cardiac arrest, you were gone, and then they had to bring you back, which is yeah, the result. They, they said I was flatlining, so the flatline, you know. And then how long, you said four and a half minutes, how long is it before your, I mean, is there a time limit before your, that's it, your brain dead? You know, is it like five minutes to ten minutes? I don't know how long it is. Well, it depends, it varies a lot. There's a guy who drowned, he was an underwater swimmer. He was underwater for 11 minutes, didn't surface. They brought him up, they got rid of the water, but as you know, the effect on your brain being immersed in water a lot of the time. So he survives 11 minutes, which is very unusual. I don't know, it depends. I asked that question, I said it depends on the individual. And then when they opened me up, uh, they did an angiogram and saw all the blockages in my arteries. And then about a week later, they made me walk around with a trolley with a drip for heparin to thin my blood. And after the operation, they said, we can tell you why you survived the uh, electricity we gave you. They told me that the, this fourth lot of Increased current doesn't fix him, it'll kill him. They said, you've got a lung muscle and a heart muscle, like we'd expect from an athlete, you know? And how did you have that, just well, just because of your body? Well, I suppose I was determined to overcome a f- fat body where I felt weak and tired when I was a kid, and I just worked and worked and worked at it, you know? I was terrified of the gymnastic exercise at the gym, and the gym teacher said, well, you don't start off with a lot of natural talent, but I'm amazed in the last three years, while right at the high school, he said, of how much you've gained strength and you've gained balance in you know, the gym work, he said. One day I realised that it's really paid off. <laughs> and they said, the hospital said, if you've been a sedentary worker or a smoky truck driver with hamburgers, you wouldn't have lasted this long till you were 47. What happened to you before would have happened to you when you were 27. And so in the, in the, did you have any, I'm fascinated by people who've had near-death experience. Yeah. Did you have, was there any memory of... Oh, yeah. ...what happened to you then when you, when you passed out or you well, went to cardiac arrest? I remember that I, I, my mind was floating in space and there were millions of stars coming and going through me like I was, I was invisible. And I looked around and said, you don't have a body. And this voice came from within me saying, you know why you're here, don't you? I said, no, I don't. I said, who are you? I'm the other part of you you don't normally listen to. I said, well, come on, stop playing games, you know. I said, this isn't a Monty Python. How do you know it's not? And I said, "Uh, so who am I? I'm Phil Gould. Well, that's part of who you are. And I said, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your life? I said, I don't know. Yes, you do. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? And uh, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to say in your life? I don't know. He said, that's right, no. No, it's the hardest thing you've ever had to say in your life. You feel you're letting down, what, yourself, your family, the whole society, by saying, no, I can't manage that, I can't do all these things. When was the last time you said no to your kids or your your ex, uh, not ex, your, your wife? When this last time I said no to the local council or the school council and said, you can't do this, you know, you're flat out. They said, you're no good dead to your children or the community by continually to say yes. When was the last time you finished reading a book? I don't remember. When was the last time you did a, 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 a bushwalk on the weekend? I don't remember. When was the, when was the last time I went to the opera? I, I missed that. I said, I can't remember. They said, uh, said right, so you need to make some changes. And that is my body Python out of body experience. So I was going to ask you, you, were, you knew you weren't in your body. This was an out, total out of body. Yeah, I, I miss so often. Well, could you, well, could you see 
you couldn't see yourself before you said there was no body. No. So what, 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 what was it? It was just uh, well, a presence, like a... It was just, it was, it was just like a, an awareness. Uh, a consciousness of yeah, some kind. And so did you, you weren't freaked out, you don't, you're not talking to me as I'm listening to you, you're saying it very matter of fact, yeah. it's quite a long time ago, clearly, you're yeah. saying it to me like, you obviously got a very good memory, so obviously it's done with you, yeah. which is amazing, but there's no part of that where you were like, oh my God, I'm dead. Did you know you were dead? No, I didn't know not I was dead. Not dead, but you were t- technically I, dead. I didn't know I was dead, I was alive, but what happened in the next three days after that, I'm in intensive care, and I'm passing in and out of my body up on what they call the ceiling. There's no ceiling. It's just you're up above. There's no ceiling, there's no floor. There are no walls. But I look down and I can see this shimmer image in this bed, which is a realised household as me, and a shimmer image of two of my younger children and my wife in the room, and the nurse is rushing back and forth and injecting me and all that. And I go, I go, clunk. Back into the body, and think, oh shit, pain again. So and you that, completely knew you were looking down on yourself and everything around you. Yeah, but there seemed to be a delay in my awareness between seeing that body and realising it was me. So when you said you said it was days afterwards that you realised what you're just telling me now, you didn't realise that at the time. And what I told you before that story, yeah, I remember straight. I remember straight away. You so that was okay. Yeah, that, but the bit where you said about when you saw your body. wife and the kids and, and the shimmer and all that, 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 was, that was over the next three days okay, after. That, that took time after to, to come to you. Yeah, but seriously, and I, I evidently six times through those three days, I was disappearing and like, and then they were putting stuff in me to kind of bring me back. I didn't know where I was except that my situation up there. I had no pain, no judgment. No fear, no emotion. When I get back into my body, I get clunk. I said, I shit pain again. All I was aware of was state of being where there was no pain, and state of being where there was pain. Pain from my, my chest hurting, my heart hurting, cha- uh, pain from the vomiting, which is exhausting. And so, what was uh, you, the voice that you heard? What was that? Was just another. Me. Was you talking to yourself? Yeah. You knew that? But, but, but see, I, I'm lucky I don't have superstition or religious connotations to stuff. Now, other people who had that would have said God spoke to them or Mary spoke to them. Uh, everyone has a rational explanation for which, and some people who are, who are trained and stuck in religion interpret everything in religious icons and that, you know. Now, I say that I've a lot of my mentoring in my life has been the Pythons, uh, Spike Milligan, the Goons. I, some, some of the most intelligent psychiatry happens with people who are called mad. I'd say, Bob, how do you know you're not mad? Yeah, that's a strange question. Well, I, say, I don't, sometimes don't know whether I'm mad or not because I see things or hear things or imagine things and I think, and I, I've tried in the past to talk with a bit to other people and. A lot of people freak out when you talk about ideas and thoughts you have when you dream. So since I was a kid, I've often wondered, how will I know if I'm mad? Because as kids, you see people wandering around the streets and kids in school that appear to be what they used to call loco. But I always thought, that, hey, maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe they can't find words to communicate what they're seeing or feeling. So when it comes out as a gamble, so that was not a gavel. So the gavels was we have it all to tune in and hear what their, their truth is. And that's been something that's on my mind uh, off and on all my life about them. It doesn't mean I do it, but I try not to make assumptions with what other people intend or what their basis for their belief. Try to let it come out to get it to know someone. So it comes out more holistically. But I consider myself statistically unlucky in my life with the things that have happened to me. But on the other hand, I feel myself lucky that despite those things, I've managed to find the right 
person, the right idea, the right book, the right group of people that I can still have a life. So go back to when you were in the hospital yeah. with your family. Yeah. How your wife and your kids? How did, what, what, what was that like? You know, once they. Oh, it was you... awful because my kids were freaked out. My wife was freaked out, but she showed that by sitting like an Egyptian stone statue on a chair as far away from the bed as possible. And she's like one of those Egyptian sculptures from the Nile Valley, you know, sitting there. So I saw her fear uh, frozen solid, that kind of thing. And my kids at one stage, two, two youngest ones, they were 10 and 12, they, they came out and said, Daddy, 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 don't go. And I, and they looked at the, at the monitor. And the nurses come in and pull them off because I've got all these tubes and things, you know. So the nurses are doing it for the right reason. But at that moment in time, I had a second of anger, a second of wanting to protect the kids. The hospital said, this is the last time I went out of my body, I came back to, because the kids were being manhandled off me. And I was the old fashioned protective thing came up. The previous time I was out of my body, I had no emotion. I said, What are they all rushing around for? What are they doing, you know? So, how long were you in hospital for? October the 20th to December the 24th. I came back Christmas Eve, but I really should have gone into rehab, but the hospital never suggested it. And my kids and my wife wanted me to go home, they would look after me because school holidays, but it was the worst thing I could do because I, I wasn't able to cope with the expectations of what they all had and what I, I they weren't used to letting go the old, the old dad or the old husband, you know. They still, they wanted to get real, really quickly it was partly for their sake they wanted to get well. They were all very insecure as a result of... Because you did everything. Yeah, yeah. And so that's your nature, you were always that kind of person? You're a giver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And or a pleaser or whatever words you whatever want to use. Whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, um, but that's, that's always been in your nature, which is what oh, you talked nature. about before, which is why that voice, when you're in that existential, um, out-of-body experience, is telling you, look, Phil you've got to stop doing all this stuff because you can't keep saying yes. Why do you think you are where you are? Because you keep saying yes. Because I was, th- I was there because I never learned to say no. And what, so what, tell me why, why do you think you never learned to say no then? Why were you always somebody who just... I, I, think, I think starting off life as a, as a wee kid and as a sick kid, even when I was born, Mum said it was, a hard, it was a hard birth, it was hard to keep me alive. The doctor, the only doctor in the town was at the mine with a disaster at the time. I was born at home. My mum was a little woman, she was like a sparrow. Her hips didn't open properly, so my head was stuck in the birth canal for four hours. So eventually when I came out, mum needed uh, 15 stitches, which is a lot. That is a lot. And my head was as long as my body. And the midwife, and also a wet nurse, there are wet nurses, has too much milk and she'll give milk to others. She spent half an hour massaging my head back into normal shape because it was like a science fiction. And my grandmother, my mother's mum, who was there, in the middle of the birth, she had an epileptic fit. So there was a lot to contend with. And my mother was in such pain. And years and years later, in my 40s, actually after I had the cardiac arrest, I went and did some work with a neighbour who was very good at rolfing, like a deep massage, which brings up the emotions, you know. I, I could go to see him if I was prepared to be a... Uh, He'd treat me better, but I was like, the students he was teaching Rolfing could be there too. That was fine by me, because I had no money going to the hospital. And, uh, and during, during one of the Rolfing sessions, he put his hands right inside underneath my ribs. All over, he pressed poop up, but underneath my ribs, it was really uh, potent. And I, I, I just burst into tears, and I, I sobbed and I sobbed. And all the other students had to make notes about what would happen, so they could give me feedback. So there was a debriefing after every session, you know, as much for them as for me. And they said, when I spoke, it sounded like a, a wild, uh, like a wild beast. I've never known that part of myself. I spoke like a wild beast, like a, a, an inj- injured beast, you know. And I started to talk and, and when I came out and they had the debriefing, they said, what did I say? And they said, 
you apologise to your mother for causing so much pain. I said, what? Now, I didn't know. At how, would, yeah, how would you know that? Well, I didn't, I didn't know at this stage. Mum hadn't told me about my birth. I was gonna say, okay, so how did you know that then? Well, well that's, 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 that's the question that... And Bob, big Nauruan guy, did the role for He said, oh, many things like this happen. He said, we know things in our body that uh, get held there from birth. And sometimes before birth, he said, uh, I rang Mum up. And she said, son, I've got to go now. She burst into tears and I, I told her what I well, no, about my birth. I said, I had this experience, mum. And so two weeks later when she came up, she said, well, we need to go for a walk in the park. And then she told me about my birth. When I was speaking, I said, I'm sorry I caused so much pain. And then she told me about the stitches and our next two, uh, two brothers, they were cesarean. And the doctor I was said, going to ask you that, how are they not, if she... Yeah, and the doctor said, are you not to have any more children at school? I was born when mum was 20, another brother when she was 22, and then 24. So he, he did an unusual operation, particularly for a country doctor. He buried the ends of her fallopian tubes in the wall of the womb. He put a little stitch in. So later on he said, if you... What I have children later on is... You could. You could, we could, we could un, un, those and reconnect them, he said, and be fine. But that was very uncommon at the time, and he was uh, our only GP, but I found out years later that he was a top surgeon in Hobart Hospital, and he and his wife and two kids were in a car accident, and they all died, and he just stared at the space for about a month. His colleague said to him, Come on, Parky, Dr. Parkinson. You've got to get back into it. Like, got to get back on your bike, you know. No more surgery for the moment, just be a GP. So the, the luck of the West Coast of Tasmania to have this brilliant man. I'll tell you what he was like. When I was six, my mum and dad were worried because I would see things that were going to happen. And I didn't know they would, and then I developed a real fear of going to sleep, because... You could see the future? Yeah. I could see events that would then later happen in the town, and, and I... It and they me. did happen? Oh, they did, yeah. That's what freaked me out. So I, in my childhood, they said, I thought I'd caused them. So go on, give me, give me an example. Well, I didn't want my dad to go to work, but his dad worked shift work in the mine. And I used to wake up when he'd get up to go to work. I said, Dad, you're not to go to work today. And he said, Sonny, he said, what are you talking about? I said, to because I said, there's dust and rocks falling everywhere and people can't breathe. He said, so you just had a bad dream. He said, I'll put you back into bed. And he got to the mine at that uh, face at that time. It was about half an hour's trip from Queensland up to the mine. The boss came out and he said, Roy, we're short of sober drivers. A lot of drinking in the town. He said, you're one of the few sober drivers I can trust. He said, so he drive a busload of workers, about 20 or 30 of them, up and down this mighty road. I know what, you, I know what you're doing, you're fitting and turning maintenance underground uh, today. I want you to drive the bus. But Dad came home that night. He was covered in soot and stuff and he'd been underground to try rescue. I'm sorry to be emotional. No, no. And uh, he said, son, I want, I want you to tell me again what you saw. He said, that was exactly, exactly what happened, he said. And he said, I'm sorry to have doubt, doubted you. He said, always tell me now what you see. He said, I believe you have a unusual aspect of your personality, so a week later they decided just in case it was something that was abnormal and it could be fixed if it needed to. Because the other, oh, the other thing was that I didn't want to go to sleep at night because I didn't want to dream. I didn't want to cause, because I as a child thought I'd cause it. Wow. So silly. But that's what you saw. It happened many times, things like that. Not, not as bad as that one, but other things I would see happening. I'd see one of the girls in my class 
they beat by her father and ended up in the hospital with a blood nose and, uh, and she wouldn't come to school. Oh, we don't have Shelley today. And as a six-year-old, not very discreet, I said, oh, no, no, she's, she's got a blood nose and she's in the hospital. Thank you, Phyllis, that'll be enough. So I said, well, see. Who was this in the class yeah, when class. you said this out yeah. loud? Yeah, I said and, wow. and, and then I find out a few days later that that was right and the teacher recommended my parents maybe take me to the doctor. Uh, she thought it was a bit more weird than my parents did. But... So I went, I went to Dr Parkey and Dr Parkey said, this is good too, but I'm waiting in the waiting room. I want to do some tests on Philip first before he came back in. And he asked me if I wrote with that, I remember. Think how unusual for an adult to ask a child is it all right with me? So, but I sat there. I thought he was talking to me, so I was answering him. At the end of about ten minutes, he said, "Philip," he said, first he wanted to tell you there's nothing wrong with you. You have a gift, which can become a burden." He said so. One thing I want to do is you have to be careful who you tell what you see in your dreams, particularly as people in the school or people in the town that you know about. Them. Talk to your parents or you can talk to me. And he said, for the last 10 minutes I haven't said a thing to you, I've just been asking a question in my mind. And you've asked, you know? Wow. But that's, that as a kid, that didn't make me feel special. It made me feel, it made me feel terrified. I was scared because I thought, I, I, I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to dream these things. I don't want to. I don't want to know too much. And the things that you dreamt and the things that you saw were people that you knew and and yeah. places that you knew. Yeah. So where you were, it wasn't like they were other, oh, no. other countries, other oh, no. cities, other no, people. Like that. Just, it was everybody that the people in the town. Kids I played with, teachers, my parents, my auntie. It was always bad? Or was it good and bad? Oh no, it was good and bad, but the bad ones were really bad. Did you have the visions of what was going to happen when you were asleep or during the day when you would be awake? When I was asleep, yeah. Which is why you said before, I didn't want to go to sleep. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to go to sleep because I thought... And, and Dr Parkey explained to me, it's very important that you don't think that you caused this. I thought if I, did, if I didn't dream it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. happen. Yeah. It's something that throughout the ages, many cultures have believed that what you dream can easily become a reality. And what you picture in your, in your mind when you go to sleep, they can actually... And people have used that in... in you talk about some societies in Africa where they use a person that's this way inclined to dream something else that they want to happen. Yeah, of course. That's the other side of it. Yes. And I, I was just, I was just, a, I was just an unwitting vehicle to do that. Now I, I lost, I lost that about a year and a half later. Something else happened to me. I lost it. I only regained it after living with Aboriginal people uh, in the desert for a year with my wife and my older son when he was two. Why, why did you lose it? I, I was molested by some uh, neighbours when I was about seven. It crashed out, and I, I used to take the paper to, on the way home, the newspaper, because this man had a bungalow and he was off work, and I just used to go to the door and throw it in. And this day he said, I, I, "I'm not able to pick it up now, can I bring it in?" I said, "I'm not allowed to go in. I'm not allowed to go into the house." You were told not to go in. I had my father, mother said, "You yeah. can take it to the door." They were not known to be uh, predatory or dangerous. Uh, I was. He did by himself, but he had two mates there this day. And I, from what I remember, they were all drunk and celebrating some birthday or something. Yep. So anyway, so I was grabbed, uh, raped, and I had, I, they, I passed out one stage when they had their, sitting on my chest, they had their hands around my throat, and then they put a bucket of water over me and told me to get out. And if I ever said anything about it, they burned the house down and you know, uh, no one believed me. And so I rushed out. To, at this stage, it's winter time and it's just about dark. And I was, I was so traumatised. I didn't know. I couldn't understand what had happened or why it had happened. But all I was, 
I was very sore in the in the bum. And I had feces and urine all over me and I couldn't understand that either, you know. Their feces and urine. And so I, I I ran three or four blocks to the edge of the river. And we also don't go near the river. Because the river has this residue from smelting the copper from the iron ore and it's all grey and sludgy. And some parts it's very soft and you disappear in it, you know. Anyway, I didn't care about that. I crawled down the bank and got into a bit of water and tried to wash myself. I covered water, it was freezing cold. When I went home, my dad said, why is that wet? I said, oh, I, I fell in the river. He said, come here, you've been told never to go near the river, particularly at night time. And he hit me on the backside. First time in my life, I ever been hit by my father. He had big hands, he was a gentle man. I never ever remember him losing it. And for some reason that just shut me up and I couldn't speak. Every For years I wanted to tell him what had happened, but I couldn't remember myself to tell him. I think my mum would have died a thousand days, she would have blamed herself. So after that, I lost that ability. Because do you think, because of the trauma that you experienced caused yeah. that just to... I just tore that part out, you know. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Go back to the bit I'm interested yeah. in. Um, did anyone explain to you, you said it was normal, the doctor, he just said to you it's normal for you to be able to do this. He said some people have this um, gift, some don't. He said some try to develop in some society. Okay. He said you, you're fortunate in a way, but he said it could be a burden for you. But isn't that amazing that he said that to you? Don't you think if you look back on that now, because oh. you could have been stigmatised and told that it was terrible and awful, and to say I to know. you it's a gift and you're lucky and I was, so, I was, I was, so, and he said, just remember, he said, if you, if you can't talk about, it, write it down, or do a drawing, or do a painting. Now he didn't know that, but he was practicing some of the best principles of art therapy, you know, which they do now. But oh, I'm, I'm so grateful for that man. He looks a bit like Orson Welles, and in his question to me, he said, in his mice, some people think I'm fat and ugly. What do you think? And I just blurted out, I said, no, I said, I, I, I don't think you're fat and ugly. I said, I said, you're, you're a bit fat, and I said, like, I'm a bit fat too. That doesn't make you ugly. But I said, your eyes are kind. It's always in the eyes. I couldn't understand why he was... Weeping. And I didn't realise that until um, a long, uh, you know, I used to go and see him often, actually. Whenever I had a headache, because with a kidney thing that happens, you have, it's easy to get headaches, you know. I had to wear glasses and they had to keep getting changed to be able to see the blackboard. I had to have glasses first time ever after I had the kidney nephritis. When I asked you before yeah. about whether you, how did you, you were a giver, you were, you know, and you said you, you didn't. Oh, I wanted to tell you, yeah. So when I had that rolfing experience. Oh yeah, well they were. Yeah, and where I. When you, you said you said some, I've got where you said some things and you. They told me, I said, I'm sorry I caused you so much pain, mum. Yep. The, 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 the group asked me, oh, what way did you cause pain? And I said, my head was too big for mum's uh, vagina and she opened up and she had to have lots of stitches and I caused the pain for ages. And I, and I remember that because as a kid I remember mum always worrying if I had a headache, she used to worry about my head and all my head checked out. Because here's my head stuck in the birth canal for four hours. Yeah, and then when I asked mum, mum told me a few weeks later, and having had um, good psychologists over the years, I think that I think I was always trying to gain approval as a person, uh, approval for that because I was all right, considering the fact that I caused my, I caused my mum a lot of pain. So I was trying to get mum's approval and dad's approval. That because and so that's where it came from. So then you they went beyond that to everybody. It wasn't yeah, just but, them uh, that you uh, were trying to uh, approve and seek and applied to everybody. Yeah. But, you, but going back again, because I've forgotten what you yeah. said, you didn't know that at the time, but you knew that, if you know what I mean. You yeah, knew, that's right. Yeah. I, I knew it sublim- subliminally yes. or, or 
as, as the rolfing person, Rob said, you do it in your muscles, you do it in your nerves, you do it all through your body, he said. He said, um, and Rob said to me, you know, the, uh, the rolfing person, he said, um, one day we'll realise that the mind is every part of our body. The mind is not just located where the brain is. The mind is actually in every, every cell and every, every muscle, every part of her body. And, and unless we take steps to move it, and just let it go, it play there. And uh, that was interesting stuff, you know. That is. See, 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 so what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is that some people hear about my life and say, oh, you're so bloody unlucky. And I say, yeah, but on the other hand, that despite all the shit that's happened, I've been lucky to find through friends of reading and just my own intuition, ways of recovering. So a lot of my life has been in recovery mode. Not resting, but recovering. Yeah. See, in agriculture, I practice uh, and have studied um, Alan Savory from East Africa. He practices a, a, a whole systems approach to farming where they, they found it's much better to have a lot of small paddocks have a lot of animals in there for a short time. The animals eat the grass, they shit, then they move on. And then if you have nine paddocks on your farm instead of two, then if you only use, only, but if you only use, say, one paddock at a time, you've always got eight in recovery. So the land gets a chance to heal the worms, the organisms and the grass, uh, all that gets a chance to heal. I look upon my life that it, um, not that I've consciously chosen it, but I've been fortunate to have periods of recovery. At the time, I thought I was doing nothing. I thought I was just standing still. I was, I should do more. I've been I'm very critical of myself throughout my life about needing to do more, needing to do better. So you, you've always continually push yourself yeah. as much as you could possibly do. Yeah, uh, and I, 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 uh, my rationale, if I put it in the words, is uh, life's so short, there's so much to do, there's so much that needs doing. And, uh, uh, but I, I missed out on the important thing. Yeah, but some of it can be done just as well by rec in a recovery mode for a while and, and, and enjoying standing still, enjoying treading water, Knowing that the time will come when you'll need, like, like a lion. David Attenborough once said, uh, "A lion is very efficient. It'll hunt when it's half starved, sort of finds something to eat. When it's eaten, it's full of that. It'll rest until the next time it's hungry. So it's 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 exercise on a needs basis." It's a smart way to live, yeah, absolutely. Why do more than you need to do? And he said you can level off the animal kingdom that way. And uh, I think he's right. Yes. Do you, but do you look back on that now and have any regret that you did live your life that way? That you pushed yourself to the absolute limit when actually you didn't need to do that? Oh, I do. I have, regret, I have regrets that I wasn't smarter. I couldn't see the big picture. I couldn't see that I'd be healthier and wealthier now if I had taken a bit more time out just to rest just to sit and listen to music and do nothing else for an hour, or just to uh, go to the opera, or go for a bush walk. But, oh, but then, we, we wanted you to take us to this party, or we wanted you to help us fix our bikes, and all very worthwhile things, so I tried to fit everything in. Yes. But what got left out of was my needs. But, but because... I, I can't blame anyone but me because I made the choice. Yeah, but do you think, if you look back, do you think that you didn't think you were worthy enough to... Hmm. And But where did that come from? Because you're, because maybe your parents, were you were disconnected from your parents, that they weren't close to you, so therefore you didn't feel, they didn't make you feel like you were worthy enough? Uh, if you look back on that now? I think what happened was that I've come across in the last 20 years the, the concept that we can be abandoned even though our parents haven't abandoned us. In other words, when I was 
basically less than just five or six houses away. I felt abandoned, but I, I, I never ever kind of thought my parents abandoned me, but I felt abandoned. And, and also I was made to feel it was my fault. Like what the, one of the things they said, oh, look at these, look at these long eyelashes and his curly hair. Too pretty to be a little boy. And so Evelyn, my mother told me years later that about that time, she said to me, remember that time when uh, your father and I found you in the bathroom with the paramedic was trying to cut your eyelashes off? I said, yeah, I do. I said, what did you do that for? And at the time, I didn't know. Uh, this discovery of what I have ha happened to me has been unfolding over a number of years because I was so traumatised that I'd forget bits of it. Yeah. And, and I, I never wanted to ever... I didn't want to fill in a jigsaw for the sake of uh, neatness. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to wait till something came up to me during a, a workshop or a course or during really deep... I did some um, primal therapy for a while. Uh, uh, based on a, a right in a villain right, and he was it, it, it was like they were breathing again, and you breathe and breathe because you can't breathe anymore. And that uh, situation where you at that point of absolute exhaustion, you've got no resistance left. Often you can let out what it is. That's the theory behind it. Which makes sense. Yeah, and thank you very much. For your time, oh, so that's, you, that's it's been I, fantastic. I, I, hope, I hope it's useful for people. I know it's been amazing. It'd be amazing. <coughs> Some of the stuff you said is is unbelievable. I, I, I'm you blow me away. So if you've done that, then all right, then I believe other people will be um, also. So thank you very much. Um, I'd love to do a part two. Well, we can do that. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. If you've enjoyed listening and learned something, then I would be so grateful if you could leave a five-star review, as this will help other people to find this podcast. I'm very grateful, as always, for your support.